It's the Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. Have you thought about changing your career? I don't mean you personally. I think your career is great. I just mean, have you done one thing for years and maybe decades and then thought, well, what if I changed industries and tried to make a living doing something totally different? Well, that's what my guest this week did. His name is Matt Donnelly. He's a good friend of mine from back in the New York City long-form improv days. And... He and I have been performing comedy together since the early 2000s, but just a couple years ago, he decided to become a professional magician, and he's got one of the more unusual paths to a second career in show business that you're going to hear, and I think he's just got a lot to offer on growth and learning what you're capable of and expanding your tool set, and... Um, Not only that, Matt's always been a very deep thinker in terms of comedy and improv, and I can tell that he's starting to think deeply about magic as well, and I'm really excited to to hear what he has to say about the, the, the field two, five, ten years from now, as he really um, gets his chops, as we talk about in the interview. Matt appeared on Penn & Teller's Fool Us. He's touring the country with a show called The Foolers, which is a magic show. Uh, he also has this podcast, The uh, Ice Cream Social, and he's a cast member on Penn Jillette's Sunday School podcast. And he hosts a great podcast that I love called Abracababble, which will cost you some money on Patreon, but you'll get some magic secrets. Um, it's a really interesting interview. I th- hope you'll get something out of it. I'll be rambling after the interview about my personal life and in the meantime you can email me at podcast at chrisgrace.com you can join the community at club.chrisgrace.com and until then enjoy this discussion with matt donnelly matt donnelly welcome to the chris grace show oh thanks so much for having me i'm thrilled to be here uh, so we're, it seems like we're both waking up. <laughs> sure. Yeah. See, you saw me finish my breakfast and I got yeah, my coffee right. here. That's right. Um, you are currently in Salt Lake City. Yeah. Uh, I'm in a- West Jordan. Where I'm in West Jordan, Utah. Yeah. Which, uh, which means I'm an hour later, which means I'm, I'm an hour lazier than you are for both waking up. Wow. Cause... You're cracking that noon. You're really like, uh, yeah. no, no kids around. I'm sleeping until <laughs> that's a hundred percent it. I was like, uh, <laughs> And I did three shows last night, so I was like, I was authentically tired as an as an aging male. Uh, <laughs> I was. So you're performing at Mystique in West Jordan. Yes. Uh, yeah. What is three shows that? What What does that mean uh, when you say you did three shows? So it's different than say the Magic Castle. Like the Magic Castle, I'll do three shows a night, uh, but they're twenty minute sets. Out here, you do forty five minute sets. Uh, so I'll do. They have a parlor room that's kind of like a high end they, they each everyone's had like this high end five course meal and then i come out at the end like a, a play thing for the rich and i do uh, <laughs> a little 45 minute set there but then they also have this thing called the prestige theater which is a little more low-key on the dining end but it's a it's a stage it's like a proper stage so it feels more like doing a stand-up set environment than a fancy parlor and so i get to do different things uh that i wouldn't do in a parlor like the very first time i played a mystique location uh, the big trick I used to always close my sets with in stand-up clubs when I was opening for Piff was this thing where I would have weight prediction and duct tape on my chest and stomach mm-hmm. with different predictions, and I would rip off the duct tape and chuck it on somebody who would get grossed out in the front row, which I haven't done since COVID. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, because that caused COVID, right? <laughs> I think so. I, 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 I bought my duct tape from Wuhan, and so that's why yeah, I think they trace yeah. it back to there. Right. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, uh, and and I was playing Folsom, and it's a, that that parlor is even more intimate than the Utah location. And so I was like, these people just paid a lot of money for this like high end meal, and I'm ripping duct tape off my chest and belly. Yes, I literally went back. <laughs> Uh, to the booker after the first show. She's like, how'd it go? I was like, good. I think I'm going to cut the weight prediction bit. I think it's weird to do that at close range. <laughs> <laughs> and then they were like, no, that's yeah. why we booked you. We booked you for that one trip. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're here um, to clone you. So Matt and I have known each other for a long time. Yes. Um, and we both go way back to uh, improv in the New York City scene. I was thinking about when I was prepping for this interview, and that's that's uh, that they... word is doing a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> <laughs> when you were washing your hands, and you're like, "I'm going to interview yeah. Matt." Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah when I was, um, no, but I was thinking a couple things. One is, um, do you like? I feel like, like I feel like there was a trend. So, so anyway, you used to be a long form improviser. Yes, uh, I mean you still are, but that was your main thing. And then yeah, that was my main. Shifted... I, I was a I was a zealot, is what I would say. I was a long yes. form zealot. Yeah. Uh, and now you've shifted to your primary career is as a magician. Yeah. And I think there was a transitional period where it was like, you know, Matt Donnelly. Um, he's like a magician who was a comedian who you know comes from comedy, but he's a comedian, and it's like uh, you know he's uh, th- there are a lot of like. Um, almost like training wheels built, built into like the framing around you. Yes. You know? Yeah. And yeah. Now yeah. I feel like it's just, do you feel like you are now just, it's just Matt Donnelly magician? Um, I think I'm getting there. I think it's close, you know? Um, I think like, it's funny. Like I got to like, I'm very spoiled for all. So, so, you know, you know me from comedy, which means, you know, how much we, you know, I struggled to gain footing in things that paid well. Uh, yeah. in comedy uh, and so uh, that's why I got to like turn to magic because I was I never quite got over yeah. the hump like some of our you know like you and some of our friends have done uh, and you know uh, so I do think it, it helps you know tremendously but but I think like it's weird because I got to open for Piff for 60 shows on the road and that was incredible but like no one gave me credit for that but that was the hardest and coolest and most legit thing. Like I was going out in front of crowd after crowd that was not expecting an opener. And I was really trying to figure out how to like get people in a comedy club to like magic tricks, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, so <clears throat> that gave me an unbelievable confidence with it. Uh, but it, honestly, it wasn't until I played the magic castle um, that everyone was like, Oh, he is doing this. Uh huh. And so wait, wasn't that was that was that the time I saw you after the I might, lockdown? I, yeah, twenty twenty one. Whenever oh, okay. that one, yeah, yeah. So this feels re- recent. This this feel of like yes. Uh, I you know you know there's this there's an idea of like magicians guilt, um, of of like where magicians feel somewhat exposed at a part of their performance that's vulnerable to like an audience figuring out what's going on, but like, yeah, do you, have you shed this, uh, comedian to magicians <laughs> guilt or something like of owning it, I guess is what I'm asking. Yes. I think I have, um, I, you know, I'd honestly say that it was, um, it was coming out of the pandemic. I was working with, uh, Penn and Teller, right. They were about to relaunch their show 
after the lockdown. And they waited, they closed down right away and they waited a very long time to come back. Um, and then I went to be like, oh, like they basically were like, hey, Matt, if you want to hang out for rehearsals and stuff, we'd love to have you around kind of thing. And when I showed up the first rehearsal, it was me, uh, Matt King, and Jeff McBride uh, are invited to hang as Penn and Teller reconstruct their show, right? And then the next day I show up and there's no Matt King, there's no Jeff McBride, and I'm just watching. And then at the end of that rehearsal, Teller was like, Matt, do you have notes? And I was like, yeah, I took some notes. He goes, okay. And Teller gathers everyone, gathers the crew, the lighting, <laughs> the, the whatever, and everybody. And I sit in front of the entire Penn Teller crew and I start going over all their stuff. And it's valid, surprisingly valid. Mm. Like people are like, oh, okay. And like, and suddenly like the whole machine is moving around things I'm bringing up, you know? And then- yeah. The next day I come in and I start saying stuff and it's the same thing. And suddenly I am really helping facilitate Penn and Teller's comeback from the pandemic. And it's very bizarre. It's not something I thought I was going to do. And then by the end, Teller was like, we've never really had a director like you. And it's really great. And I was like, director? Ghost? You know, and I think then, and then kind of like realizing that like, one, as I, I share an unbelievable amount of sensibilities of Penn and Teller, who have had an outsized influence on, on everything getting into magic, uh, but uh, feeling like I got to return the favor a little bit. Uh, and then that's where I really started to kind of feel like at least I, I got a, a more anchored sense of the lane I'm in. And so then I started to be more confident as a comedy magician. I relate so much to the feeling you have of you were working in comedy, you know I mean, in the long form world, like you, you had this feeling, like I know I'm good, like yeah. I know what I know what I'm talking about, and um, the the feeling of like not getting traction in the way that you want is so frustrating. Yeah. Um, and then, but then what happens is it seems like you have sort of like stealth come into magic with this like decades long experience of watching performances and giving people useful feedback on them. And so you're almost like a ringer coming into this situation of like, can you watch a performance and take notes? Yeah. You've been paid, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 40, $40 an hour by eight indie improv people. Yeah, like I know how to a write, thousand times. <laughs> I know how to write bigger all caps print in the dark when I can't look down because the yes. lights. It's yeah. like, I know, I know little, little dumb things that you think, don't don't want to hold up from taking notes watching improv shows that do yeah but also what i find poignant about that is like um uh i mean correct me if i'm wrong about this but like from a from an outside point of view in a way it wasn't like you had like um or not earned is too loaded i i don't i, I just that's fine i sense this so yeah go ahead it, it wasn't like you had earned the spot to be like hey i'm a director i'm a great director i'm gonna direct your show um uh you, you hadn't like de uh demonstrated that like hey i'm the dude that comes in and like show doctors up your performance whatever right right part of what, what i find poignant is there's a moment where penn and teller who are these like like two of the greatest magicians of all time, um, sort of endow you with the respect to say like, Hey, you're just another person. You're by default. We think your input is valuable. 
and then you rose to that occasion. So, like, you certainly earned it in that moment. But what I find poignant is lately I've been just thinking about how many sort of sliding doors moments in our lives. Oh, yeah. De- depend on these. A person just. There wasn't a way for you to, like, um, steam your, steamroll your way to that opportunity. They had to sort of, like, gently, like, embrace you in it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, first off, I've been around them for. And it was for about 13 years, you know, and yeah. I started as an intern for them on their Discovery Channel show, you know, and even that, like, I wasn't even the original, the first co-host of Penn's podcast. I was the second host that kind of came in to fill in, but then they liked me, so they kept me around. Like, everything's been incredibly slow and earned over the years. Yeah. And I just, and even with, even, even with their live show, like their live Vegas show was the post-pandemic, I was on Fool Us as a writer every season and I had things to say to them here or there when they were doing their tricks for fool us. Um, if I noticed something, you know, watching on the truck or whatever, but like even that they still worked with me <clears throat> on fool us, but not on their stage show. There was still like a distinct barrier between those mm. things. And then now I work on their stage show after, you know, it was like after, after seven seasons of fool us, you know? Yeah. So like yeah. it's, it's been like this kind of slow, deal and part of it is that they've they had an embarrassment of riches always around them well, you know? that, yeah i'm sure <laughs> like uh there's no you know but it was in you know and darkly if it's true is that johnny thompson their director passed away mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so they've been they kept rotating different people and i just happened to be one of this is i was in that groove so i just happened to be like the 11th or 12th person they reached out to to just hang in their orbit uh yeah all trying to fill that vacuum left by johnny uh well first of all I think uh, you actually kind of disproved the premise of my question which is actually you did earn it like in a in a I mean if it takes thirteen years then you did earn it <laughs> like, oh that's true yeah yeah yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah I never asserted myself I never said like hey you know who'd be good for this me or hey, yeah you guys are looking for whatever I just kept yeah yeah I never because they are legends well, I never assumed that I could do it but also credit to people who there's a lot of situations where if you were the intern on a TV show. It's, people have trouble sometimes seeing people transition from one role to another. You know. Yes. Um, uh, that's where Penn and Teller are amazing. I mean, I think even their manager, I think, started off as someone who just worked for them, who's now been mm-hmm. their manager for years. They let people kind of uh, rise up or whatever. Um, it is. They they are great examples of people to be around as entertainers and show business for sure. For that, you know. Was your move to magic driven by like the need to to bring in money? Yes, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I, I and it sounds so cold, but it really was like so. Unfool us, right? I, I I have to, or before the pandemic, you know, when we had live audiences, or whatever. I chatted with every magician uh, before they chatted with the host. So mm-hmm. the first season was Jonathan Ross, and then every other season's been Allison Hannigan, and it was the sense of like, oh my god, I'm just talking to professional person after professional person. And they all just make a living, and they don't need a, a whole bunch of fame. And uh, and comedy is so hard and cruel. So it was <laughs> it was me mouthing off to Penn that started it. It was me going like, all these. Uh, this is your this is your podcast. So I'm going to tell the story the, the 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 way I never tell it. Okay, <laughs> so I'll say I said 
all these motherfuckers get to make a living doing magic and like i can like barely get by in comedy like it's very it's very annoying to be around you know whatever mm. and pen was kind of like uh well basically like magic's harder than you think so he basically was like why don't you try learning one goddamn trick first <laughs> yeah like, fair enough and then he was that say, conversation was that conversation in person or was that on the pod on his podcast in person it was okay. in his dressing room because <laughs> uh, it basically was like you know like I would like run to Penn's dressing room after any taping because I would get to watch all these performers come through but I couldn't talk to him about any of the performers ahead of time so I would like can't wait to like run scurry to Penn's dressing room to finally like unload all the things I observed with him uh, going all with all the performers going through the process to fool us you know uh-huh. um, and so it was uh it was it was it was really just out of that, and then um, uh, I legit was working on Fifty Shades the parody, uh, the show that you started in off Broadway. Um, I was uh, stage managing that show and understudying because that's the kind of outfit we ran, um, <laughs> right. and uh, <laughs> and it was closing. And then the show called Opium was opening up at the Cosmopolitan, and I was going to be brought in as a comedy consultant for that show, and there was about a five month gap there and uh uh i didn't I, I know to get i had to get some kind of job but i didn't want to get a job that i definitely was going to quit in five months because i definitely was going to do the opium show mm-hmm. um and so uh at the time i took pens dare and i was working with johnny thompson on magic here and there like once in a while we get together and just work on magic tricks and working on fool us i developed a a, a, a huge curiosity of magic that i didn't have before fool us you know, yeah. like I, I understood, I loved Penn and Teller. I also loved not knowing how the tricks worked. And in fact, when I wrote with them on other projects, it was me not knowing anything about magic that gave me an edge in the writer's room, you know? So I'd be like, look, I don't know how to like float a chicken, but if we had like a floating chicken here, that'd be great, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I just write stuff and be like, you, you magic guys figure it out, you know? Right. And then they were, um, they were like, uh, well, we got to use an Okito chicken. Yes, exactly. Of course, of course, you got to. Do yeah. we have an Azram for a chicken? Do we have a... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I, I was really kind of like um, uh, desperate. And I was like, I bet I could... I bet I bet if Johnny's teaching me tricks and I tell Penn and Teller, Johnny's been working with me on magic, I bet I can get them to teach me one trick each. And if they, if they both teach me one trick each, then everyone's going to teach me one trick each. Because if I say mm-hmm. Johnny Thompson, Penn and Teller are all teaching me magic, everyone else, and I'm going to do a show... Everyone else is going to say yes, <laughs> and yeah. that's what happened. That's what happened. So I did yeah. a crowdfunded show with seven magicians taught me seven magic tricks, and I performed a show. Right. I mean, and th- it's an insane story. <laughs> it's insane because it's a it's a it's 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 born out of desperateness, and I've been desperate many times, and it's one of the things where I took a leap and it worked, and everyone else reads those stories and like you know what i that's great and what they don't know is that like i've taken that leap probably six other times and fell flat on my face mm. you know like you don't start magic at 39 because everything else worked do you know like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's you so know, uh i, threw I almost my... don't want to i almost don't want to think about the implications of that statement <laughs> 
<laughs> I did, you know, like I threw all my money, uh, college money, into uh, a TV pilot, an improv TV pilot that failed. You know, I, yeah. I saved up a bunch of money, and we and, and we went to Edinburgh with Neutrino, and I lost five grand. You know. Uh, mm. And then we met with everyone. We met with everyone. We met with the BBC. We met with NBC. We met with, I mean, so many cable networks. And it came out with nothing, you know? And there's yeah. so many times where I thought I was going to take some kind of leap or make some kind of move and, uh, you know, getting cast in shows or whatever or pilots. And it just never happened. And so this was, but 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 we we speak this language, right? We only know how to take big swings. That's why you're in show business. And so this yeah. big swing was was ridiculously successful. Piff the Magic Dragon taught me a trick, and then Piff the Magic Dragon <laughs> saw my show and was like, you should come out with me on the road. And then that made me more legit. You talk about like moving how people see you. So there's no way I would have gotten on Fool Us as like, hey, I've been doing magic on my own. But when I was touring with Piff, that made the producers go like, you've been touring with Piff? And I'd be like, yeah, it's great. And I mm. have this one trick that would be great on the show. you know. And they they took it you know but it, it took that change of of perception to get that going but touring with piff and getting on fool us did everything for me yeah i mean i see that piff tour is like your beatles germany thing yes of like you yeah, just, yeah yeah you just did you got reps in like a pretty high pressure situation very high pressure um, I, there's nothing like it still now stand-up clubs are the hardest places to perform and that's why, like, wait, every wait, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I know, I know. And it's why, like, so if I say I'm in comedy, or stand-up comedians hate when I say I'm in comedy, right? Or like, <laughs> like they're kind of like, you don't do stand-up. Shut up. I hate your guts, right? Like, and, that, and, like and stand-up no, comedians hate when other stand-ups say they're in comedy <laughs> <laughs> because it's brutal. You know, mm. and the, the environment of performing stand up is brutal, and then the world behind stand up is brutal, and those are it's two different brutalities. But the on stage brutality is is crazy. Yeah, like if you if um, you waste if you waste five seconds of a stand up audience's time, they turn on you. They start to hate your guts. Yeah, I'll, I waste a lot of people's time on stage. I I, <laughs> I, I, I waste uh, in improv shows. I waste a lot of other improvisers' time as well. Um, <laughs> Something struck me about what you said when you when you said that out loud to Penn, Penn, which is like all these guys make this money, like I could just do this as well. And he's like, it's harder than you think. It actually kind of strikes me that you both were right. Um, you know, because <laughs> right. I, I true, yeah, yeah. Like if you uh, so for so you're on the master class that Penn and Teller did. Yes, uh, so and you if see you see that, <laughs> you can see that magic is harder than you think it is. Um, yes. Because this is what I mean, I think is so fascinating to me about your entire journey is because when I saw you at the parlor, the last time I saw you, you were at the same level of performance that I used to see you in like Neutrino or when we did, uh, you know, faculty shows together in New York City. And then, but there was a dip in the middle where in that masterclass, it's not like it's Matt at his top performance level and he's making a couple mistakes or whatever and they're correcting him like that. It's like yeah. you seem really nervous in that masterclass video. I um, am, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, that's the thing. It's like, I, I, it was, 
when when that I had I had such a mix of emotions when I came through that master class. We were touring with Piff, and they called. They're like, "We want to put you guys both on the master class." Um, and and you see me, you Penn and Teller, Johnny Thompson, and we're gonna do it. And I was like, "Oh, okay, great." You know, and I was like, just going back and forth with different tricks I was working on. And Johnny Thompson taught me Chop Cup right away in my first show, and I cut it because it was too hard for me to do magic uh-huh. technique wise. Um, which is any magician listening will laugh because it's not considered hard to many people. <laughs> um, but it was hard for me. And, and so I was working on it like crazy. And then in the, when I, uh, when, I, when the producers wanted to see it, I showed it to them in the hallway and I nailed it. And I literally go, oh no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I just nailed the hallway performance for the producers. There's no way. And then oh. I get out there and I'm like, you know, I'd been going out with Piff. I've been doing all this other stuff. But I hadn't tried to do magic in front of Penn and Teller since the first show I did. And that first show was a disaster. And mm. like a lot of my tricks went wrong. And I was like, and it was my first magic show ever. Do not do your first magic show in front of Penn and Teller. And then uh, <laughs> uh, I did that. And then uh, uh, and then I'm back and I'm like, oh, God, they're going to watch me do magic again. And it's a show that it's a trick that Johnny taught me. And I'm trying. And then there is my first time I was trying to move from the character I was playing to being me but I hadn't done any shows enough shows as me to know what I was really mm-hmm. doing so it was me experimenting with just being me for the first time and then you're on that stage and Masterclass is a big outfit I mean I'm surrounded mm-hmm. by just very expensive equipment a lot of staff and it just goes quiet you know when you go to an audition you're like I want to nail this audition and suddenly the air just goes thin in the room like, oh no <laughs> yeah. like before you start you're like I'm going to be terrible right now and there's nothing I can do. Like, <laughs> like I just went there and they like, and they started to set up and I started to get really quiet. I'm surrounded by all of these cameras, all this equipment, Penn Teller and Johnny Thompson sitting in their chairs looking at me and I go like, oh no, this is about to mm. go horrible. Mm. And, uh, and it does. I honestly, and this is the truth, and this is, the, I honestly almost passed out while we were shooting that. Oh, uh, when Penn I says, totally believe that. Penn, Penn's like, here, wear my jacket. And he gets his jacket off and, he's, and he takes it off. My drama brain was like, oh my gosh, object exchange. This is a significant moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which I was like, and I was like, oh God. And I put the thing in and I literally felt the, the, the blood leaving my head. And I don't ever get like that. So I was like, mm. I, this isn't like, it can't be like just like the other time I almost passed out. There was no other time I've almost passed out from sheer just standing there. And uh, and I struggled through it. And when it was over, the master class people were so happy. And I was like... Yeah. <laughs> of course they were. They got such good footage. <laughs> and I literally was like, oh, God, that means that I really was as bad as I thought. Because they were oh, like... Man. Penn and Tell were just all over it and Johnny there was everybody was taking turns just getting so much and they were so lit up and they were really just trying to get some good performance out of me and they were really invested and it made Masterclass people go like yes yes oh my god and so and I was like oh god you know and it's one of those things was like this could be a big break for me and no it's not it's just good for Masterclass and it's good for everyone else but it's not good for me well but. also I mean, potentially not good for you in the sense of people have these at that stage in your career, people have these doubts about like, who is this dude like from comedy? All right, let me take a look at him in this master class. And then like, I wonder if some magicians, that's like the first time they saw you. 
Yes. Well, and that's a, magicians bring it up. You know, they're like, "Are you you're in the mm. master class, right?" And I was like, "Oh God, yes." <laughs> yeah. So that's when I that's when I realized that I have come far because I'm like, "All right, come see my show." You know, like you can come see my show and you tell me how I am from that master class. Well, that's why I. So to me, it uh, and this, I don't want to ruin people's corporate improv gigs, but um, to me, there's a there's a lie that gets sold with corporate improv gigs, which is like if you. Uh, learn how to do long form improv and yes and this is a skill that can apply to any other field and because you have undeniable chops in improv yes. but you had to develop a separate set of chops for magic that like it wasn't like your yes. long form improv chops at that masterclass taping were like you know what I'm fucking up but I got this like it's like the way you would if a long form show was fucking up oh totally no 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 I was yeah, no, no. I mean, magic, you have to rehearse, which is anti-long form. Yeah. Uh, uh, you have to prep. You have to think about things ahead of time. <laughs> you know, you yeah. have to make sure things are in the things. And blocking matters tremendously uh, and all this stuff. And, and there's a lot of it that doesn't help. The only thing that does help is, like, if I mess up a trick on stage, it is not the end of the world to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can make fun of myself and make the audience laugh with me. In fact, I messed up a trick last night. Bad. And uh, <laughs> just let... You just actually let... Uh, stab yourself through the hand. <laughs> That's what I did my first show. That's it. My first show, <laughs> Teller taught me ropes. I used a knife. I cut my finger open and had to use duct tape uh, to close it. Oh, that's it. right. I just, I just bled all over the stage and knocked out blood on someone else. It was really gross. And then <laughs> they it was like, love, love that. tore with me. Well, that's it. Apparently, like, Piff and Penn just went up to each other after my first show and said, magic is hard, huh? <laughs> <Like it laughs> is. Um, has this, uh, has this process, like, does it, has it informed your comedy performances or your comedy writing? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Um, you know, in that, like, everything is a magic trick. You know, mm. like everything is like make believe, and and you're and you're trying to pull it off or whatever. But it has a lot. I mean, I always understood that magic's relation. I mean, um, comedy's relationship to tension in the room, but magic, you really have to balance tension, um, because you need tension for the payoff, and laughter releases tension. So you want to be funny, but you also want your tricks to pay off big. So there's um, so they don't they don't they don't fight each other early in a magic trick, but they do fight each other late in the magic trick. And so oh. that's changed uh that's changed a lot of how I approach different stuff or whatever. So I have a different I have a tremendous sense of tension over imagination now when I improvise versus when I was just an improviser. Right. And but for some reason all of the scene you initiate like this is a great magic store for <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, a lot of it there. A lot of it uh-huh. like hey 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 bunny, you and I are in this hat. We do, yeah. we do a lot of those things. <laughs> I'm just so interested in the way that you've... Not a common career change. No. No. no, no. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's funny because like I look at some people like you or whatever, so like any, any of my friends who are in comedy but still seem like they want a little something more, I do kind of go like, hey, you should look into magic, you know? Yeah. Um, you will, uh, I mean, so that that feeling that you had on Masterclass, I had in my two failed Magic Castle auditions because, um, and that's where I viscerally experienced the, oh, I'm nervous at a completely different level than I've ever been, or or that I have been in like ten years. 
No, looking yeah. back, like you—you you told me the story, and, and we've had a little bit of change about it, but I've never actually talked to you about it. Oh, I, sure, ask me. Yeah, no, because I'm surprised—I'm <clears throat> surprised because you are always such a laid-back and confident performer, and I've seen you wade in the regular improv failures that we've all waded in. Yeah, uh, with with a, almost like a guilty pleasured <clears throat> confidence, like this is going bad. <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna keep actually, going. I mean, yeah, actually, I do. I like. I think it's funny when like improv shows go really. Yes. Bad, even if even if I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> That's what I mean. That's what I always love when any anytime I was formerly the faculty went off the rails. I always yeah. knew you were coming like right out. Like I always knew like, you're initiating the next scene. And also, kind of- a lot of times, like in an improv <laughs> show. I don't want to like fix the problem. A lot of times, a lot of no. times, I'm like, let's let's make this worse. <laughs> exactly, like you you and our friend Ptolemy Slocum. Like if if it was like yes. the show's going off the rails, I and, I and both you were in the show. I was like, the show is not going back on the rails. That's no, not an option. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, agreed. But yeah, so I think that um, I mean, I think some of it was just like I do think that I I do think that chops have to be. Um, developed separately for each field it's like why like um you know athletes that switch sports they can't just like go to a different sport and yes you know they they an athlete who um is let's say d1 going into the pros they've put in what like 15 years of whatever into their sport yeah so they have a lot of like institutional knowledge about the sport they have a lot of like technical knowledge about the sport but they have this like iceberg under the water of skills and experiences that have built up their relationship to the sport that can't really be articulated. And that is the part that I don't think is transferable from one thing to another. Yes. Um, I think that's very true. So when I auditioned for the castle, like both time, uh, so one time a trick just didn't go right. And, and I went into this, the, my first audition thinking, you know, it's cool is like, I basically like, created a trick like i i there was another trick that had read like in an old book that was kind of an interesting idea um and it basically was just like two people um giving you numbers like uh give me a number from one to ten i'll deal this many cards off and then they're they're mat their cards are matching so it's to show like they're compatible it's you know yeah yeah yeah. a couple of sympathetic cards or whatever yeah yeah so uh i did it so so what like what did you think the expectation was for the audition was was it to make up your own trick? Well, it's not clear, but that is definitely not the expectation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I don't know if it's changed, uh, but like at the time that I first auditioned, I probably could have taken four tricks off the shelf and just executed them properly and past that, that that's probably Are, you know that happen. in hindsight or you just didn't want to do that in the first place i knew that in hindsight i didn't i mean at the time there wasn't not a, there wasn't a lot of like uh articulation about like what you're supposed to do uh, uh and sometimes conflicting information from people that had done it and also change the uh, there were i actually did audition at a time later i was told that my auditions took place at a time when they were trying to make it stricter to get in um Right. Well, I, I'm not sure why, but like, uh, I think they just go through, I think like anything, it just goes through phases, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and it goes through phases of politics of the board and that kind of stuff. All that stuff. But I mean, yeah. I mean, knowing you and knowing, like, I, and knowing other people, I'm positive it's a mistake that you 
you're not in. <laughs> well, so that that trick, um, I updated it with like a sp- specific kind of deck, mm-hmm. and uh, that deck just failed. Got and it. in the moment of the audition, I was just like, <laughs> I, I don't know. How, like, it's maybe the third time I've ever done magic for people, and so like. I don't know how to recover from it. Yes, and, yes. And also magicians love outs and improvisers don't. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love for me, for me in improv, the out is we're doing improv. None of this matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And that's where I go. They all can't work. Uh, and I yeah. go, and like last night, I was like, I know you guys are like the tension in the room is that like, I might've messed up, but I'm still going to have the thing at the other end. I'm telling you right now, I've just messed up the trick and we just need to find this woman's ring. <laughs> and I'm just like fishing through all the stuff. Right. And probably uh, like still like a, still a third of people are like, yeah, but this is still going to turn out. Exactly. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the magicians like a lot of times pride themselves on having outs. If this doesn't work, you do this. Or this is, and then when I do this, I do this. And what's funny is that even when I was doing the Penn and Teller launch, when Penn and Teller would do a trick, Jeff McBride was like, "What's your out if this doesn't happen?" And they both Penn and Teller looked at Jeff and were like, "We don't know." And I was like, <laughs> "They don't have outs." Yeah. And I was like, "No wonder why I never think about outs." I was like, "My greatest influences don't think about outs." Um, um, but that's probably well, the biggest. I- snobby thing that whoever was ju- adjudicating you was probably like you don't have an out for that you know it's probably one of their snobbiest things that first audition they were there was a there was a snobby remark on my evaluation that was i had i had told them that i was a comedian and that um i've actually which is true i've like directed some magicians shows and yeah. i think it helped them a lot help write their scripts and stuff like that so i because they were asking like why do you want to be at the castle and part of it was like I have no aspirations to be a professional magician, but I would love to like work with magicians and write jokes and construct yeah. structure, right? Which I think that both you and I could like help a lot. I mean, you and I have seen a lot of bad comedy in the magic world. Well, because a lot of a lot of magicians think comedy is, is lines of dialogue. Yes, yes, and you're and like the biggest thing is like if you think there's a combination of words that are holding you back from crushing it comedically, that's the worst <laughs> way to look at it, right? <laughs> Um, I mean, a lot of magicians don't have a relationship to a director at all. No. Um, so, but, I, which but is I'll very... say that like anyone who's kicked ass on Fool Us, when you when I when I go into their background, they all mm. have either a director or a cabal of friends where they really right. make each other sharper. And right. so, I think there's still a lot of magicians out there who want to do it solo, and I think it's a mistake. I, yeah. I do just think any any outside voice. Uh, getting in on your process it's proven to help numerous magicians well because i don't think it's it's it doesn't seem reasonable to try to progress by taking audience response as a proxy for a director i was just talking about this uh the other day i think one of the things that magic suffers from that no other art form suffers from is the low level of passability Mm. like if you're mediocre at improv you know it and the audience knows it. Right. You know what I mean? And if yeah. you're mediocre at stand-up, boy, the audience is not having you. You know? Yeah. If you're mediocre at magic but your tricks work, people go like, look at that. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you can operate on such a low level of passability and earn on a low level yeah. of passability that it's hard to know how to raise the bar. Because they will take the moment at the end where it worked that's and it. forgive you the like bad jokes that led up to that. Yes. 
Uh, or if you're using the same licking rings patter as somebody did 50 years ago. <laughs> but those you know rings what? link at the end. They will even... Yeah, this is... Yeah, this is uh, I haven't thought about it in quite that way before, but that is definitely true because I'm trying to think of like what are the things that you can be mediocre at, which is like not just the things you say, but even the way that you... Because even if you do it in a way where it works and half the audience is like, oh, cool, and the other half is like, yeah, but I saw him put that thing in, even that, people sometimes will be like, yeah, I figured it out. Like, yes. it still leaves them with a good feeling. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So then this, why did you go back a second time? Is it just because your deck didn't work? Or were you like, I have to go back and give it an honest effort? Uh, well, uh, so to be honest, I wanted to be a member of the castle, and I probably still do, because I just want to be able to go hang out, and also I want to be able to use their library. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they have an insane library. They do um, have an insane library, with a librarian who knows. Yeah, but I'd also like to love to just hang out there and not have to buy dinner and that kind of stuff, right? Which, yes. um I mean, I could if I was calling in favors from my magician friends and stuff, right? But, I mean, also there was a little bit of, like, uh, you know... You know, you said no, so let me try to try again. Second time around, I did more. I didn't do it. Oh, actually, first time around, I did two tricks I invented. <laughs> right. The other one was uh, you pick a card. We're going to lose it in this wash shuffle. And now I have this uh, elastic headband that will magically find the card in the in the wash shuffle. Uh, that actually did work. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you flick it at it? How does the band? No, it's the card? Uh, it's like basically the oh, I've ha- the the elastic bands attached to like a a hunter card or a finder card or whatever, right? Oh, got it. It's, okay. it's a blank card that I stick into the deck, and then like it actually like sticks to the the card that was chosen. But in the wash shuffle, it's stuck to the card, but you're moving it around, and then I like pull my head up, and like the card flies out, and it's hanging off my head, right? Oh nice. That actually that actually worked. Um now it's so because at the I was just valuing a thing which is like I think it's fun for me to like make up tricks. <laughs> Definitely. Um and yeah. uh that but that wasn't necessarily a value that they were auditioning for. <laughs> uh yeah. and so I went back a second time with thing and I didn't I don't think I created anything in the second one. The second one I was like uh and second time I just like I flashed on a uh flashing for those who know it means like I showed uh a part of the trick that sort of gives away what was going on um, at a bad angle where somebody could see that I had like added some cards to my hand or whatever. That was actually like the main thing and it was enough. Oh, sorry. The snarky thing that was said the first time around was I said I was a comedian and all that stuff. And then in the evaluation it said um, to the point of like not having an out, like for situations, the unexpected situations, maybe you should use some of your alleged comedy to uh, improve your performance. Oh, fuck <laughs> off. Burn, burn you to the ground. Yeah. And that guy does not uh, administer auditions there anymore. So Good. I, <laughs> I don't... Yeah, that's a little too... You know, it's so hard. I mean, so, I mean, so hard for magicians to like other magicians. Um, so I, 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 that process sounds so uncomfortable to me. Yeah. So when you were talking about the... Uh, your the discussions you're having around magic. I I just had a flash in my mind, which is there has to be a book coming at some point. You are the second person to bring. I'm so new to it that I'm like the idea that I would write a book. I think is so. But uh, I mean, but this is a book that's like a high because let's the uh, so 
you are in the long form improv world. You are a person that likes to uh, fashion paradigms and yes. theories. Yes, right? yes, yes. <clears throat> so I've had a, I've had I've had that improv book written in my head for twenty years. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I feel like the the combination of like a comedy magic with some scaffolding of like a theoretical approach to it. Yeah. I think your brain like naturally moves there. So like this is where I think the book should live. That's interesting. I mean this is the best pitch of me doing a book that I've heard someone else give to me. So that's good. I like that. <laughs> well, I mean don't like cuz you have like I feel like you've taught the uh a structure called like the bull matador in the yes. improv world, mm-hmm. but I feel like that's not the like I feel like you've often had a like sort of a philosophical look at the art form as well. And so yes. if your brain works that way in relationship to long form, I feel like it must also be doing that towards magic as well. Yeah. I mean, it does. Like, I laugh all the time. Like, uh, yes, Bull Matador, history, philosophy, metaphor. I've had a lot of, like, things that have been good enough that they've been stolen from me and taught by other people. <laughs> which I think is uh, <laughs> the highest compliment. Um, but, uh, uh, but, yeah, like, I make a joke about the three rules of escapes. Uh, if okay. you're going to perform an escape, you have to either say that Houdini did it, so you got to do it again, hmm. or it already has to have started. It's already in motion. By the time I'm talking to you, the the, the, the fuse is lit, the timer is gone, the dominoes are falling, and this is what's going to happen. Okay. Or three, you have to be kind of enough of an asshole that part of me, just the smallest <laughs> percentage of me... Wants you to fail? Wants you to die. Like, has, has no problem with this going wrong and me watching it and being a witness to it. Right, right, right. The, the fourth rule is you have to be uh, Asian and dressed in an old Chinese uh, robe. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Or actually, exactly. you know what? You don't have to be Asian. You just have to be in a Chinese robe. I just say, or just say Asian things or whatever. Yeah. You just say Houdini and or some ancient yes. uh, thing. Chingling Fu and oh Chingling Su. What had do, do you Chung Ling Su? How much do you know about him? And, and... I have uh, so Chung Ling Su was a Chung Ling Su is the white guy, right? Yes. Okay, so Chung Ling Su was a white magician back in the day that basically stole the entire act from a Chinese magician named Ching Ling Fu. And yeah. uh, there's a book by Jim Steinmeier that I have that I have not read yet. Uh, so I haven't delved super deep into this, except that. Um, this is a white guy who did like yellow face and made a lot of money doing it and is still like on the wall at the magic castle. <laughs> I know like this guy was so mad that an Asian magician was outdrawing him that he yeah. stole his act and life like traveled with a translator and said he didn't speak English and literally like, committed to a life of it uh, yeah. before he ultimately killed himself trying to perform magic. Yeah, there's a there's a lot in magic. There is a lot of uh, unexamined, and I don't know if we'll ever examine it. But there's a lot of um, unexamined Asian, uh, like sort of appropriating Asian ness for the mysticism yes. of it. That's without strict, with strictly that right. Like yeah, Asian equals mystical stuff that you, that's beyond your 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 typical white guy reach. Yes, uh, I was on I was on your podcast recently, Abracababble, which is a great podcast. Yes. Um, uh, go support their Patreon, get some episodes. And I mentioned that there was a uh, uh, magic trick that was marketed and sold called three. Uh, th- is it two fry? Three fry? What's three, the one? Three fly. So it's three fly, which is three coins going from one hand to another. But there was a version of it marketed as three fry, 
And fry is a jargon in the magic world for like when you really like fool another magician, you fried them, right? But, uh, and I mentioned this on that podcast, and it was, uh, that at the end of the promotional video, the person did a Chinese accent and was like, oh, it's called three fry, right? Uh, and I remember on your podcast, I was like, I can't remember who it was. Was it Chris Kenner? And I was like, ah, I don't think it was Chris Kenner, who's like a, a famous consultant for like David Copperfield. Copperfield right? or, and yeah. before that famous Copperfield. And then after we recorded the podcast, I went and watched that video and it was Chris Kenner. And this is my podcast, so I'm happy to say that it was Chris Kenner <laughs> doing a racist <laughs> Chinese accent to promote it. And I, like that video is still on like magic websites where you can buy that video. And I yeah. mean, and I don't really whatever like it's just like it's just there's so much you encounter it so often in magic of like oh this is you know this is like these are these chinese coins i'm using and like they just have gibberish written on them <laughs> totally yeah like uh, i mean the the you know i mean anybody not magic well the, the obviously the phrase like ancient chinese secret right is something that like we would know yeah and so in magic which is all about secrets like it is it's this is this is just this whole era of if you want to make it cooler and more mysterious make it Asian and that was decades of magic and yeah. so it's also then decades of magic books and then decades of you know so, so it's like it's 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 outsized um, racial thing that's not in other art forms you know there's no like there was no phase where we had to pretend like to be samurais to do stand up you know yes it's because I think woven into the idea. There's always been this idea of Asian stereotypes as being like uh, they're they're um, uh, oh, what is the word for like I can't figure you out. <laughs> my my high school drama teacher. Oh, inscrutable. Yeah. Which is a which is connected to the, the inscrutable. And my high school drama teacher told me I was inscrutable at one point, which is very racist. That's in, in that's retrospect. weird. Yeah. Um. But like so, because of that, there's this element of like they are so, they are so sly and such a mystery that 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 is a that is an energy I want to have in my magic act as well. Yes, um, and so that um, amorphous feeling about Asians being sort of uh, difficult to understand doesn't really help you in other art forms. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so I think that's why it hasn't been appropriate. There's like no need in like pop music to be like, you're not going to understand this song. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You're right, right, right. Um, um, but I mean, it does, uh, but there's, um, there's a, there's still a modern day forgiveness of it because it's part of magic history. That, yeah. And that's where tricks come from. That has to bother you. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, also there's there as in everything in society, there's a big spectrum of like yes, there there's one like in LA, let's say. Uh yeah. there is like a bunch of, you know, uh self-aware magicians who wouldn't do that kind of stuff, but maybe they still uh, you know, still like do an okido box or something, which is whatever. Okido box is just yeah. a coin thing. It just happens to have a Japanese sounding name that like means nothing. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Like it's often but, called Chinese Chinese linking rings. Yes. Um there's one where you like move objects around on a on a table and it's called chinkachink. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, um but like in LA, you know, 
I wouldn't necessarily see performers like appropriate that stuff directly. They might not be as um, aware of the history of the stuff as I want, right? So there's a spectrum. That's the LA spectrum, right? But also, yeah. you could go to a magic show in a different city where they might just straight up do like they're not past it. <laughs> they might no, just do yeah, the yeah. thing, you know. Um, actually, like they might do you, the secrets of the Orient routine. And bring out the box with the exactly yeah. like I mean not just with the Asian stuff but in general are you like ha- have you seen uh, stuff where you're cringing <laughs> yeah uh, mostly it's the um, anything flirty oh god sexual tension stuff is the stuff yes. that, that that bothers me tremendously and even when I first started it's it's so easy to do and so mm-hmm. I had stuff in my act about it um, and we take it out and I'd say like I even suffer from it because when I was doing the duct tape trick in comedy clubs I was always trying to pick a big guy to do it mm. and then when I did it on Fool Us I was like oh it's going to be me Penn and Teller it's going to be a bunch of guys we should get a woman volunteer and, it, and, and, and uh, something that I thought was not sexual at all something that had no sexual innuendo some people on the internet do think it does and then mm-hmm. I get painted as like a, a monster and that's tough um, uh, to read uh, especially because you're like I don't ever do it that way uh, I don't do that <laughs> anymore right you know uh, but you know it is what it is and so it's, it's it's just naturally in it I think so much so and so I think like it's it's hard because you know I've talked about this on Abracababble with RJ all the time because he, he was doing a lot of comedy magic back in the day and like it's 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 so when a line works and works and works for decades at a time and it doesn't go out of style then suddenly boom it's completely out of style it's jarring to people you know yeah but it also it's also the truth like it just is you know and so I think it's hard when you see people who are more accomplished and great still doing lines that you're like gosh I just don't think that's the way to do that anymore you know, mm-hmm. um, without like a well, I, when you were presented with something like, let me phrase it this way. Sometimes in magic bubbles of friends, there'll be a thing, or even comedy bubbles, like say there'll be a thing of like, hey, uh, that line maybe you shouldn't say. For example, uh, at the parlor recently, I saw a magician do a thing of like, hey, I'm bringing up a volunteer. Um, I'm going to take uh, your, uh, your you're giving me a dollar I'm going to hide it somewhere in my body like now don't go looking for it on me and it's a lady that he's brought up you know uh, yeah 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 these sort of awkward interactions right so and then you might go to this person and say like hey I think uh, maybe like in 2023 maybe you shouldn't phrase it that way or whatever there's a there's a thing that I see sometimes in those bubbles where there's a tension between hey that is true uh, maybe I should modify what I'm doing, and your peers being like, "Fuck them, man!" Like, you know what they, you know? Yes. How do you navigate that moment? I, I say it. I, I say it out loud with sympathy. Uh huh. I, I literally go like, "Gosh, you know, like when you were young, and there were older guys who were like, hey, I get comedy too, fella.' You want to chat comedy? Didn't you hate that old person, right?' And, <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah," and then you're like. And then you would say, that's out of style or you can't do that anymore. And they go, come on, it's funny. Oh, come on. It's just yeah. jokes. And I said, didn't you hate that person? <laughs> and I was like, and it's hard because I want to sometimes yell, oh, come on. You know my heart. 
come mm-hmm. on, you know, whatever. But that I know I'm sounding like that guy who doesn't want to evolve. And the thing is, like, when when do you tell yourself you're done evolving? Mm-hmm. You know, that you've evolved enough. I think that, by the way, that I believe what I just said is the tension of our entire nation. Uh, uh, and, like, why we have all the, like, haven't I evolved enough is, I think, a lot of the sources of the political uh, mm-hmm. uh, tri- you know, strife um, only amplified and, and nudged and poured, poured gasoline on by cable news. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the there's a lot of tension from, like, can I draw an underline over where we're at right now? And yeah. I don't want to go any further. And I don't want to hear about anyone else's uh, <laughs> things <Yes>. from now on. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but yeah, and so I, I say I say it like as like, hey, I, hey, I share the struggle. But but if anyone's thinking that, isn't it better just to get rid of it? And then you you follow it up with like, have you been writing new stuff all your life? Are you done writing new things? Mm-hmm. You know, because when we get down to like, oh, but it gets a laugh. Oh, but the most time it gets a laugh or whatever. Like, why are we being so precious with one line of dialogue? Mm-hmm. Throw it out. Put something yeah. new in there. Figure it out. And then you know? the, there's a parallel tension for me sometimes where it's like, or I, I guess, you know, there are situations where somebody might, like if I, if I like post something on the internet and somebody might say like, that's not funny because of this. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then there's the, there are situations where you almost need to hear the argument be like, okay, that's not a, that what you said isn't funny because of this. And then for you to just be like, yeah, I hear you. Uh, I understand your argument. Uh, I still stand by what I said. Cause I, you, you know, like I, yeah, yeah. It, like it, it, it's hard to navigate that. Like sometimes you're right. <laughs> Yeah, or it's just not important. Like, like yes, you can fight that battle here, but mm. on this meme, I don't know if it's worth fighting the battle. You know? Yes. Like, I don't know if this is the place to, to line up and point our guns at each other. Uh, yeah. Now, like, all right, I laughed at this. I posted it. You made your point. You're probably right, I, but it doesn't remove the giggle I had in the moment. And sure, you've proven that maybe the laugh is below me, but that's it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's all we're getting to at this place yeah like um i just had a video come out from the laugh after dark festival in vegas uh because i did their comedy festival in the fall and they released my full set from the the festival and at the beginning of the set i said a joke that was like i'm chinese and i'm gay so when people ask me what i am i tell them i'm a caucasian and (laughs) the which i've been saying since like i've been saying that joke since it's a good two, joke. 2000 or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then there were two comments on the Instagram that said, uh, boy, he's just stealing meme jokes from the internet, right? And I did spend a little time uh, uh, commenting. By the way, two comments from stand-ups, like people who um, their Instagram's linked to them doing stand-up. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which seems very, uh, like, ill-advised. Just even if you think someone's stand-up is not good... Even yeah. if I think someone's joke is not good, I'm not going to go onto their page and like post that. Like, Seems like, like bad li- form. Like I literally like it's, it's social media. It's like I stood on a soapbox and yelled it. Is yeah. how I picture everything. Like why? I understand thinking it. I understand telling your friends. I don't understand putting the box down and screaming it out to strangers. Yeah. So you know, like, I I did I did uh, have to stop myself from uh, 
writing comments in response. One was I had gone to look at their jokes and I was going to give them reviews. Oh, man. But did I screenshot these guys' profiles for future reference? Yes, I did. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'll debate more than I will. I've seen you. You'll debate more on the internet than I do. Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I could debate understand. a lot. I debate a lot and I, um, uh, it, it's, you know, honestly, sometimes I debate, like I'll get into like long protracted face, uh, Facebook fights, right? I yeah. do think sometimes I will do that just to like sort of like work out my own arguments. <laughs> like well, it, good. it improves my arguments a little bit. Well, most of the time I see someone get into Facebook fight, I'm like, oh boy, but I actually do learn from yours. So I do, I don't mind when you get into it. <laughs> you, you have made me a better person. You have made me evolve by reading your stuff on on the internet. Well, I'll the the things I'll do in a Facebook fight are I will I w- if someone drops a source I will fully go read the source that they provide, especially because seventy five percent of the time their source disproves their point and they just didn't read it fully. Uh, I love that when they re- they they'll drop like a wow. study. Or they'll drop a, an article that links to a study, and the article will support their point, and the study won't. And I'll be like, if you actually read the study they're talking about, it's actually diametrically the opposite of what you claim. Oh, man. <laughs> um, and then the second, th- like, I, I, I like doing it for that. And I'll, my other rule is I only go as low conversationally as the other person does. So if if they... You won't curse if they don't curse. No, but if they drop, like, a personal insult, like, then it's like... All right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the stand-up in you. If we get to rip, if we get to rip people, great. I'm, yes. in, I'm all for it. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, like you said, like I mean, you're obviously, you know, you're somewhat well. You're like, I don't know what phrase is like such an insulting way. So now you are a successful magician. I'm curious what it's like now for you to have fame. Uh, and also through your podcast as well, not just Abercrombie, but also um, uh, ice, cream I, ice, ice cream social, and also yeah. because you were on um, pens as well. Yeah, there's like a fair number of people like follow you. You have festivals and stuff. Like, what is that like now? Oh, I, I, I well, it doesn't feel like fame, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I say this because like like uh, no one ever interrupts me at dinner with my family. That's what fame mm. is. Number one sign of fame is that your kids get annoyed with you. Um, <laughs> is from what I noticed being around other famous people. Okay. Um, I think what I've done is with the podcasting, I think I found a way to scratch the itch that improv theaters gave me without starting an improv theater. Mm. And I always thought that was something I was destined to do. And every time I felt like I could do it, I was like, gosh, I really don't want to. Um, but uh, so I've really basically found all the things I loved about improv theater and put it into my podcast community. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I am a figure of a podcast community. But when they see them, they just talk to me. No one asks to take a selfie with me. No one, you know, whatever. There might be a little. No, nervous, no one's ever asked for a selfie with you. All right. I find a few that people have asked. All right. A few people, a few. As Matt, Do- Matt Donnelly, one of my early long form improv crushes. <laughs> from, from way back in the day, I be, you know what? I bet a significant portion of your podcast following are guys that I would have a crush on. <laughs> oh, that part's true. That part's true. That um, part is true. Do you feel a responsibility to that community? Yes. And yeah. how does that like? How does that inform like your decisions? Well, you know, like 
podcasting is a really good way to self-check yourself because sometimes you hurt people without realizing it. Mm. And again, like the jokes aren't worth it. You want to be like, oh, I was just joking around, you know. I mean, I'd say the biggest thing that I've, like you can just listen to my evolution is understanding trans and trans issues and things like that. Mm -hmm. I really just didn't get it. You know, I really was... Uh, I said on air, like, I'm really my grandfather about this right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to be. And literally just people wrote in. And we just kept reading letters on air until I started to kind of really understand uh, people's trans stories and how difficult life can be with it and where it comes from and all the other stuff. And it was really eye-opening. Another thing I realized is that, like, I used to take pride in the 90s in early 2000s as being like an advocate, right? And so I thought if I'm running my mouth off about this, good for me. I'm taking the sides of gay people or or women mm-hmm. or whatever. And now social media and podcasts and everything have made it where you're like, actually, chill out, white guy. We can talk for ourselves. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it's really been about like learning to just lay out uh, and advocate what I'm supposed to or let someone tell me when to lead the charge on it uh, because uh, you can misspeak for people and that drives people crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've learned to be a lot more just humble and chill about talking about anything uh, from, from doing from doing podcasting and stuff like that. Um, and, and, you know, like, uh, I think the world can be so unsocial now. And so I, we do the festivals and we really take pride in our interactions on social media and how and saying how to interact with each other and being our own community standard bearers because I think it's really important that people can feel heard and recognized and get their voices out there. And so I, I that's what I think. So I don't. It doesn't. When I say it doesn't feel like fame, that's what I'm talking about. It's like I, I feel like I definitely feel, I take pride and then I've created some niche place for people to feel comfortable uh, and be themselves. And that part's probably the coolest thing I've accomplished and that's a much bigger accomplishment than fame it strikes me that podcasting which is this form that I love is so not like a lot of social media because the relationship that I have to the podcasts I listen to are not uh, fraught with drama they're I like no. podcasts are like a comfort to me and I feel yes. like like I never listen to a podcast and I'm like oh, I can't believe why did I listen to that I'm so angry now <laughs> like, no exactly and I and I was a big podcast listener before I started podcasting mm-hmm. so I knew and because you're right that I'm so analytical about these things so I understood the relationship a podcaster has to its listener you mm-hmm. know and so when anyone else is going to start one I'm always like remember you're with them while they do the dishes you're with them while they walk their dog you're with them at the gym and you're with them in the car like that's a very intimate space to be with somebody, uh, and so that's and so when they see you, if there's any awkwardness, it's not because they're fame struck. They literally just are overwhelmed with this guilt of knowing me, mm. and now all of a sudden, combined with this smacking of reality of they've never been in front of my face before. Yeah, and so most of the time, I try to unload unload their burden. I go like, no, you do know me. Uh-huh. Like I, I, I talked into a microphone and you listened. That was the whole idea. So right. don't feel don't feel bad for doing your part of the equation. You right, listened. Right, right, right. You know who I am. You know when I've struggled. You know my kids' names. You know you know how long I've been married. You know all of it. You know. And then you follow up by saying like, "But I don't know you, and I don't want to." And then you walk away. <laughs> yeah, that, that, very, that, that's off. Peace and love. Peace and love. 
Um, uh, actually, I think that that's my theory about why fame makes people insane, uh, like at much higher levels than than we have, which is that I, I think the human condition is like not uh, well suited to an asymmetrical like you know, 10,000 people know who I am and I know 10 of them. Um, yes, it is weird. And also it's weird because there's a guilt because you got what you wanted. But like, there's a study about like, basically like, uh, if you ask the youth what they want, whatever, the, like, so you ask kids now, they'll say, I want to be a TikTok star, you know, whatever. Mm. If you ask me, I wanted to be on a sitcom. You know, people before that, whatever that, whatever that most spectacular fame thing is is what people wanted in any decade mm. but the reason why they want it is not because young people are idiots and selfish is that the 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 real world is so intimidating to them and they don't know much about it so they know if i am famous then at least i should have access to money access to friends access to people who will take care of me wherever i go and it's just it is just really an expression of being overwhelmed by the real world and that like this will solve that and when you look at it that way as you get older and you start to figure out the world the more fame doesn't help any of that and so mm. it really is just this odd burden but you feel guilty because you desired it yeah right? yeah so, i mean i don't like, agree with you i'm still going to pursue more fame as a solution to <laughs> Uh, so Matt, you, I mean, I'm just starting this podcast. It's just, we're in the first couple of months. Uh, yeah. what, what's, what's some advice you have for fledgling podcasts as they launch? Uh, find a way for your listeners to feel heard or recognized. Okay. Definitely not doing that. Um, yeah, okay. Next. <laughs> uh, commit, commit to it or be honest with your listeners about how often you're going to put out episodes and for gotcha. how long. Makes sense. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know because I'm because my podcasts are all old dinosaurs now. I Has your podcast things to know? Are there people in your communities that have started successful podcasts on their own? Yes. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's kind of cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's neat. Yeah. Um. All right. I, we got like the... I'm, even mine is a spinoff podcast of Penn Sunday School and Penn. The first time we did Scoop Fest, Penn was like, this is crazy. I cannot believe you did this. <laughs> uh, okay, Matt, we need the book soon. Start working on that. Okay, I'll work on uh, I will write the foreword for the book if you need it. Although you should just have Piff write it. <laughs> it would make way more yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll write I'll the uh, I'll do multiple <laughs> forwards, like the, like, the, uh, like the really, you know, make it as pretentious as possible. Have multiple exactly. Actually, answers. the more forwards you ask for, the less of the book you have to write. So... <laughs> It's like this went through six intros and now it's just an index. I don't. Yeah. I, did I miss the book? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, so please go check out Matt's work because I there there aren't that many examples of people in the arts that have sort of lived their uh, journey from one career in the arts to another so publicly. Um, and like you've been podcasting the whole time. So like people can go into yes. your archives and like, see, like you can go into, uh, ice cream social or Abracababble and hear episodes that are like, Hey, I just went to this road gig and here's the way it screwed up. Like, you yes. know, I try um, to, yeah, I try to make Abracababble a warts and all, uh, document of my career as well yeah. as interviewing other people. Yeah. I mean, I think not just for magicians, but anybody that's interested in that, um, feeling of 
like an artist who's just like been like I'm just taking off the the lid of like the this process of going from one thing to another and it's most decidedly not a snap your fingers and like suddenly you have a new career kind of thing. Yeah, um, no. That's what I think no, is so no. great about the stuff you're putting out. Oh, thanks man. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I'm all for letting people know it's a lot about failure. <laughs> <laughs> uh so Matt, what's the best way for people to keep up with you and follow the stuff you're doing? Uh yeah, if you're interested in the the my little magic journey, uh go to abracababble.com and uh it's, it's it'll cost you $2, which I get it's tough, but that's mm-hmm. really just to keep um petty magicians from yelling exposure you're exposing magic <laughs> right because uh, as soon as you give two dollars they're like that's fine <laughs> that's exactly that's really is true yeah. i laugh because because i have other friends who get flack for just talking about honestly about magic tricks and go like you're exposing the secret and i was like you know what solves this two dollars <laughs> those people go away uh so yeah i'm over there and then i just do yeah ice cream social i talk about everything with my comedy partner paul it's a shoot the shit comedy podcast with trivia at the end mm-hmm. uh, uh is a lot of inside vegasy stuff it's pretty inside vegasy stuff but uh yeah i i you know i because of uh, i i get credit for being a mental health advocate on that show wow because uh, i just talk openly about going to therapy or what i'm working on and that kind of stuff and and so and being a dad and all the other stuff and so mm-hmm. um yeah uh, it's a it's a it's it's a Surprisingly vulnerable uh, comedy podcast. I'd say. And uh, where do we Check find like tour dates and stuff for your magic show? Mynoodler.com. There you go. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'm about to just start uh, the Foolers Live tour. We're Penn and Teller producing a tour, and I'm one of four magicians on it. Uh, and in it, they're giving us some of their tricks. So I'm going to be performing Penn and Teller tricks on that tour, which is pretty great. Whoa, that's amazing. So you're doing Silverfish and you're doing uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the ball that f- floats around. Red ball. Yeah, yeah. Red ball. The two easiest tricks to just pick up, I'm sure. <laughs> just hold the hoop and wait, wait for the ball. Yeah. Uh, so my guest today has been Matt Donnelly. Uh, I'm so glad that you guys got to hear. Uh, please go check out his stuff. He, he's amazing. Uh, the podcast and, of course, his magic work. And uh, if, when we get the book, we're all going to pre-order the book on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you got to come back online. Everyone loved when you were on my podcast. I got a lot of great feedback oh. from you coming on Africa Babble. Thank you very much. Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, man. That was Matt Donnelly. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I'm really loving these conversations I'm having with people just about all sorts of things. I I do notice, you know, I basically have a bunch of friends that are comedians and magicians. So uh, I think this podcast is going to have a higher than normal magician to guest ratio. (laughs) A higher percentage of the guests of the show are going to be magicians, uh, which I I love, you know. But uh, you know what? Before we go any further, let's get to the ramble. Hell yeah. Okay, so I have some big news this week, which is um, you might know that I have been sort of reentering the world of tech by doing a program called Launch School. This is a sort of months-long program, typically between... uh, I mean, six months is really like only a few people have ever done it as fast as six months. Um, typically it's like a nine to 18 month process. And the goal of it is to get a job as a software engineer after that is done. Well, 
I have done a couple things now. I have uh, sort of jumped the gun a little bit on this process because I was going pretty fast. I think I mentioned, I can't remember if I mentioned this last week, but I was a little disappointed with uh, not the program, but my relationship to the program last week. I was kind of down on myself because essentially uh, because of the timing of Edinburgh Fringe, I can't be in this program's capstone program for until January, 2024. So it was just kind of bumming me out. Cause I'm like, what I'm kind of doing this like to sort of get a job. Right. Or to, uh, you know, honestly, part of it is like, I enjoy the learning of it. And, uh, yes, I do kind of need some access to like steady health insurance. So that was the sort of like arc over the next year or so really 2023 was a year that I told myself, I've got, I mean, I'm being completely candid here. Like I have a little bit of savings that can get me through the rest of this year. And that's about it. Like, um, I really picked 2023 as like the year that I either need to get it together from stand up comedy or acting or writing or software engineering. And so I think you've, if you've been listening to episodes, you know that I've been sort of attacking all of these at once. Um, so I, the short answer is that I got a job. <laughs> so my friend, uh, Scott from Texas, guy that I've known since high school, he has a startup in Austin and he, uh, was looking for some help with his startup. Um, and I had reached out to him in the fall and said, I'd love to work with you. I'm really re-entering this world of web development and tech. And there's a lot of these technologies that I just don't understand. They didn't exist when I, quit this field in 2010. And, um, you know, I've done freelance work since then, but I, I haven't been immersed in the kind of technologies that are used to build web pages these days. And I, if you don't work in this field, I can't describe to you how overwhelmingly different it is from when I left the field. So it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, as they say, it's a lot of drinking from the fire hose. So um, he needed some help with the startup. And there's an opportunity if we sort of like working together, there might be a chance for him to get some health insurance out of it. So it's a very appealing opportunity. Um, it's a great chance for me to learn. And that's, again, one of the things I love the most is like learning new stuff. And learning on the job is like pretty much one of the best ways to do it. So as of two days ago, I'm doing full-time contract work for a startup in Austin. And uh, <laughs> Austin is two hours ahead of Pacific time. So we have a meeting every day at 10 a.m. Central time, which uh, if you do the math correctly, means that I have a Zoom call at 8 a.m. every morning. Meanwhile, I'm also doing stand-up comedy. Tomorrow I'm flying to Vegas to do a one-night uh, feature gig for my friend Heather Pasternak at the Jimmy Kimmel Comedy Club. Uh, which is, I think, in the, uh, I want to say the Lux or something like that. Um, I'm doing stand-up. Uh, I am doing, still doing my Edinburgh Friends show, which, uh, 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 cough, cough, I still have to write. <laughs> um, if you're in the Los Angeles area, I'm doing a reading of it March 9th at Skiptown Playhouse, and I'll be doing another one in April, and I'll be doing a work-in-progress performance of it in Austin, Texas on April 15th. But, uh, I'm also traveling around doing stand-up, and uh, I, I hope this is not, you know, talking about stuff before is 
uh, real, but I think that I have booked four episodes of a Netflix TV show. So I was telling somebody today, really what I'm doing is I'm trying to see, I, I personally, as a almost 50 year old man, I have never actually in my life experienced burnout. I've never experienced the thing of, I've, I've had, as they say, that feeling of overwhelm, but I've never had that thing of burnout. And uh, I guess I'm trying to see how far I can go, like what it looks like when Chris Grace gets burnout, because that's what I'm headed towards. I'm doing stand-up comedy. I'm doing this podcast. I'm doing, I'm writing my own Edinburgh Friends show, and I'm doing a full-time software engineering job at the same time. Um, so either I'm capable of handling all these things, which is possible, because if you think about it, I don't have children. Like I was thinking like maybe I'm just scratching the surface of what, how overwhelmed people with children feel. Um, it's possible. Uh, or I'm just going to crash and burn in 2023 and you're going to get to hear it all happen live right here on the Chris Gray show. Uh, anyway, uh, so that's what's going on with me. I'm going to Vegas tomorrow. Uh, I'm hoping to get at least one interview done out in Vegas with a comedian. And uh, we've got some good stuff coming up next week. Uh, I'm doing the Fringe read-through next week, uh, next Thursday. Oh, of course, uh, you'll probably be hearing from me in terms of uh, I need to raise some funds for Edinburgh Fringe. So feel free to to do that. Uh, you know what? One way you can help me if you don't have much money is come join the community at club.chrisgrace.com. Um, because... Yes, this is sort of what I chose to do instead of Patreon. And so it is the thing that if this podcast ever becomes popular, I do want to maybe add a paid element to this show. Uh, but for the people that join in early, I'm going to try to exempt you from all that. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I really like the people that have, like the discussions we're having in there already. And I'd love to have you be a part of it. Okay. I think that's it. Um, yeah. Have a good week. Have a good weekend. Um, May you have a magical day, <laughs> uh, and you'll be hearing from me very soon. Today's episode was edited by Eric Michaud and produced by Chris Grace. The opening music is Easy Cooking by Boom Opera, and this is Chinese Hip Hop by Alexander Rufire. You can send us an email at podcast at chrisgrace.com and join the community at club.chrisgrace.com. Hope you have a wonderful day. This is the Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. Thank you so much for listening.